We are today starting a new series entitled Peculiar in a Good Way. And uh, the reason I've entitled the series Peculiar in a Good Way is because I like the peculiar word peculiar. Because peculiar is the word that the King James Version uses over in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. That's where we get our identity statement as a church because that text tells us that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And that's our, that keeps with our identity statement, right? Our identity statement actually is more in keeping with the text of Scripture. We are a family of priests revealing Christ. And what that means is we are not a loose collection of consumers that gather together every once in a while on a Sunday morning for edutainment. No, we're not receivers, we're givers. We're not consumers, we're contributors, we're priests, a family of priests revealing Christ. And as the priests that we are, God has called us to live in keeping with the new life that we've been given in Christ Jesus. That is, we are to be different in a good way, unusual in an attractive way. And so what we're going to focus on over the next few weeks is just our identity in Christ lived out in a practical way. We're going to be focusing on what does it mean to actually day in and day out live the new life in Christ that we've been given. And so our focus is going to be the last few verses of Ephesians chapter 4. Actually, toward the end of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24, the Apostle Paul says, Put on the new self after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And what Paul says to do in verse 24, he spells out for us in terms of how to do it in the next few verses, verses 25 through 32. And uh, we have not really gotten into the text yet, but I can tell you right now that when we do live in keeping with Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, when we do live these peculiar lives, they become very attractive and very compelling And people find them actually a reason in and of themselves to take Jesus Christ and the gospel and the kingdom of God seriously. Uh, When we live after the likeness of God, when we live according to true righteousness and true holiness, that's a winning situation for us and for everybody else around us and, of course, for God. Unfortunately, here's the problem. The problem is in the 21st century and probably in other centuries, We've kind of settled for a false kind of righteousness and a false kind of holiness. And so Christians commonly become peculiar in a bad way. We become set apart in a different way, in a way that is actually unattractive. And I'm not alone in in thinking this. This is not just my opinion. And and I, I really do believe we have a good family here. But I think on the whole, actually Christians can be kind of weird in a put-offish way. I want to read something to you that I I thought really resonated with me, and it probably resonates with some of you here. This one person put it like this. He said, spend two minutes talking to almost anyone outside the Christian faith, and you're almost certain to hear a list of complaints they have about Christians. The problem with many non-Christians isn't that they don't know any Christians. The challenge is they do. So what gives? Many Christians would tell you we have an image problem. We're treated unfairly. We're being persecuted. We're just badly misunderstood. I'm not so sure. It's not so much that Christians have an image problem. It's far more likely that we have an 
integrity problem. Do we get misunderstood on some issues? Of course. But that's outside of our control. You cannot control what you cannot control. And we shouldn't try to control what we cannot control. But we can control what we can control. And the one thing that we can control is the way that we live our lives. And I'm convinced that if we lived our lives as peculiar in the best sort of way people, if we lived out Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, not only would we be kind of compelling, not only would people give the gospel a fair hearing, but it just may be that people would start coming into the kingdom of God, flocking in, because they see something extraordinary and, uh, and other dimensional about our community. Now with that, let's go ahead and jump into Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Listen to what God tells us. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, that, that sounds kind of cool. If uh, you've heard that for the first time or you haven't heard that for a while, but you just read that again with a fresh perspective, you're probably responding to the text a little bit like I would on the first reading, and that is, that'd be cool. I'd, I'd like to be a person like that. Who wouldn't want to be a person like that? And if that's your response, I totally understand. That's my initial response, too. But I, I need to warn you, like I needed to warn myself, that that disposition toward this particular passage is just uh, a, a, a little bit misguided. And, and here's what I mean. Only our personally taking pleasure in being a good person or becoming a good person is not nearly as important as upholding the honor of the one that we represent. L let me go at it like this. There's this, this old sketch where uh, John Candy plays this character named Ox who's just joined the military and he's joined the army. He's sitting around in a circle with other people who just joined the army. And he's explaining that he's been told by his doctor that he's just obese, that he's unhealthfully overweight. And he better lose some pounds. And so the doctor prescribes this particular regimen that is expensive. And he can't afford it. And so Ox explains, so I said to myself, join the army. It's free. And I'll lose a few pounds along the way. And he says, you guys have what, a six to eight week training program? Really tough, I hear. That's perfect for me. I'm going to walk out of here a lean, mean fighting machine. And the reason that that is kind of comical is because he wrongly thinks that the military exists for him. Along the way, he comes to figure out, no, 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 I actually exist for the military. He's looking at the military as essentially a personal life enhancement program for his benefit. And he wakes up to the reality that actually he is a prisoner to his commanding officer for at least the next four years for which he's enlisted. 
See, when you join the military, when you join the army or any other branch of the services, you recognize my goal is to serve my country. That's why I'm here, to serve my country and to essentially uphold the honor of the nation of which I'm a part. And when that's your overarching goal, in light of that tremendous vision, it just seems rather silly and trivial to be thinking about the military in terms of me, 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 self-interest like weight loss and image management. But that's the way we have a tendency of operating. Me, 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 self-interest, vain conceit. And in the face of this self-interest and vain conceit, the Apostle Paul starts out chapter 4 like this. And chapter 4 is the beginning of Paul getting very practical with people. He says this in chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He's drawing their attention actually away from themselves toward honor. And what I want to draw out and make really clear here to you, because this doesn't come naturally to us as radical individualists here in 21st century um, self-oriented America, here's what you need to see. Living as we ought is not a matter of personal preference. It is a matter of honor or shame because our lives directly reflect on God and God's family. We, we deceive ourselves when we think that missing the mark with our lives, not hitting the bullseye with our lives, is just a matter of of personal preference or independent individual choice quite separate from the community of which we're a part. We have this tendency of thinking that my life is my own and my choices are my own and if I do sin and miss the mark, well, God and I are going to settle things at the final judgment and that'll be that. And like, No. Paul says, no. You, you look elsewhere over in First uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, for example, Paul says that your sin is like yeast that impacts the whole of the batch of dough. Your life and my life uphold the honor of God and the family of God for which he died, or your life and my life, they can undermine his honor and actually bring shame to God's name and to God's family. So, when we're thinking about living out Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, we shouldn't be thinking about it in terms of, well, this is just a personal preference, and I'd really prefer to get there, but, you know, we all go at our own paces, and some people prefer this, and others prefer that, and the only thing really at stake in me not being obedient is just showing up to the party late. No, that's not how any of the authors of the New Testament saw it at all. Your life and my life directly impact the honor of God and the people who belong to God. Let me, let me put it to you like this. Suppose you own your own family or own your own house. If you own your own family, good for you. I don't know how that works. Uh, but if you own your own house and you're the only one that lives there, let's say, you can do all kinds of personal private choices that nobody else really has any business managing. I mean, different households do different things, and that's fine, Okay. We have different preferences with regards to different imperfections. Now, I think everybody wants a perfect house, but we're not always willing to do what it takes in order for it to be perfectly put together. Here's what I mean. I think everybody here would agree that spotless is better than dirty. Everyone here would probably agree that dirty clothes are better off in the laundry basket 
as opposed to all over the floor. Now, some of you think you're married to a husband who thinks otherwise, but he really still thinks it's better off in the laundry basket. Most of us, we'd agree that dirty dishes are better off in the dishwasher than piling up in the sink or on the cabinet. But we have different tolerances toward different things and different tolerances for how long we're going to put up with whatever it is that is not perfect around our household. And that's fine. If you make different choices with regards to dust and dirt or different choices with regards to to piles and, 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 and dirty laundry and dirty dishes, that's fine. It's your house. I don't care. Really, it doesn't matter. We also have different preferences with regards to pest control. Some people are bothered by one pest, but they're not by another. Some people are bothered by a pest over here, and and these people aren't bothered. We just have different ways of figuring that one out and what we're going to do about it. Uh, Orkin did a little study, a little survey of over 1,250 people, and they discovered that 24% of people are going to pay an exterminator to come and get rid of spiders. 27% are going to pay an exterminator to get rid of ants. Now, that doesn't mean that the other three out of four people don't care about spiders and ants. It's just that they have do-it-yourself pest control, you know, and, and that's fine, okay? But I'm not going to pay somebody to get rid of spiders. They don't bother me, and ants, they just come and go, whatever. People have different understandings or different approaches or different tolerances for imperfections. Now, when it comes to rats and mice... 56% are going to pay an exterminator. Now, that doesn't mean they don't care. They can set out their little traps, or maybe they don't care if it's a, you know, every once in a while they show up or whatever. Roaches, 58%. They're going to pay an exterminator. Bed bugs, 56%. But when it gets to termites, the pests that literally bring down a house, 87% of people are going to pay an exterminator to come and make sure the job is done right. So with the exception of termites, most adults will put up with one or two pests around the house. And whatever they are for you that you don't care that much about, I don't care. It's your house. It's your business. I get it. I totally get it. When we were living in South Texas, we didn't have pests around our house. Well, they, we had one around our house, and that was tarantulas. In South Texas, where we were from, Laguna Vista, it was like the tarantula capital of America. So we had literally over 20 tarantulas in our backyard. Gina says more, but I only counted that many, uh, you know, but we, we had a bunch and we didn't get rid of them because they never came in the house. They don't really attack people. And if they do bite you, it's only like a bee sting. So it's not that big of a deal. And it's kind of a, I don't know, a conversation starter when you see a tarantula on the window or something like, oh, did you see that? That was brown and pink. That was kind of cool. You know, that kind of thing. But we didn't have roaches. And the reason we didn't have roaches is because tarantulas control roach populations. So we, you know, we did not have a pest problem at our house as far as I was concerned, with the exception of the six-inch hairy spiders crawling all over everything. But so if you have different ways, different tolerances toward different messes and pests, that's fine. It's your house. You live there. It's your business. I don't care. It's a personal private choice. Whatever. I get it. But what if you are not the most important person living in your house? What if your house or your apartment isn't your own? Or or better yet, what if the best way to view yourself is not someone dwelling in your own residence at all? What if the best way to view yourself is essentially like the manager of Trump Tower or better yet, the building and grounds maintenance person overseeing all of the White House? What if that were your job? Well, all of a sudden, when you start thinking that the way I manage 
this House reflects directly on the President of the United States and upon the nation of which I'm a part, you start thinking about things a little bit differently. Maybe you just don't tolerate the things that you would typically tolerate, the messes and the piles and the pests that you would normally put up with because it's not your house and it's not about you. In fact, it's not even about your honor at all. It's about the honor of the one who rules over all. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Your life belongs to the Lord. Your life is a direct reflection upon God, and it's a direct reflection upon the family of God, the people who belong to your Lord. But when we see ourselves as somehow independent of God and somehow disconnected from the family of God for which God died, then we're more willing to put up with a certain amount of spiritual dirty laundry on the floor and a certain amount of uh, spiritual dirty dishes piling up in the sink. When we think that our lives are independent of God, that we're somehow disconnected from one another as the family of God, when we start thinking in that direction, well, we're willing to put up with several spiritual spiders and spiritual ants and spiritual bedbugs and spiritual cockroaches and spiritual rodents. And sometimes I've even seen this where people put up with spiritual termites knowing those termites are going to bring the house down. When we see our lives as fundamentally our own, we will tolerate certain things and not tolerate others. And when it comes to sin, there actually should be a zero tolerance level, zero, because my life isn't my own. It belongs to the Lord. Your life can uphold the honor of God and God's family or your life and the way you live it can bring shame to his name and to the name of his family. So when it comes to basically living a peculiar, in a good way, life, we really want to nail this. We, when it comes to living out Ephesians, if you could stop doing that on the front row, I'd really appreciate it. If, if, when it comes to living out the Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32 life, it's not a matter of, hey, I want to nail this because I really personally would prefer to be a really good guy or I'd really personally prefer to be a swell gal who gets along with everybody. Oh, okay, I get the tendency there, and that's not a bad thing. But the biblical thing is I want to nail this because someone more important than me and his glory is at stake and some other people more important than me their honor is at stake as well. And I know it's kind of weird to be talking about other people like they're better than me, but remember, we were just in another passage where it said, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Your life isn't about you. The military doesn't exist as a weight loss personal image management system and being connected to God isn't about just enhancing your life as you see fit. I belong to the Lord. And guess what? This seems sort of weird. But I actually belong to you. And you belong to one another. That's why we want to nail this. So with that, 
if we want to nail this, if we want to really get it right, well, we have to understand it in order to nail it. So let's start going through the passage. And we're going to start with verse 25. And I'm just going to tell you, it's going to seem like we're going really slow. We're not going to go, you know, extra over time. We'll actually get on out on time, in fact, even early. But we're going to at least start looking at verse 25 here this morning. So let's read it again. Verse 25, Paul starts out like this. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. When Paul starts describing the Christian lifestyle, why is it that he starts here? Why does he start with truth? Well, probably because at the heart of the Christian life is truth. You look just a little bit earlier, not all over the Bible, just earlier in this one chapter, and here's what you're going to see in verse 15, chapter 4, verse 15, or verse 14, Paul's talking about people who have been separated from God or who are apart from God as being blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful thinking. He contrasts the deceitful thinking and the cunning and craftiness with verse 15. Instead, speaking truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. Then in verse 17, again, Paul's drawing some contrast and he writes, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And how is it that the Gentiles live? In the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. In contrast to that, verse 21, Surely you heard of him, Christ, and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. So obviously truth is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. So Paul gives us these two commands. They're closely related, but they're still distinct from one another when he says, put off falsehood and then speak truthfully to your neighbor. These two commands, very closely related, but they're still distinct from one another because it's entirely possible to be in falsehood and still not be telling lies to people. Okay, speaking the truth and putting off falsehood, they're, they're slightly different. They're distinct from one another. You can be in falsehood, for example, and, uh, and never tell a lie. Uh, let me just give you an example of this. Suppose you witness a wreck. You see a terrible accident. The police show up later. They say, has anybody here seen anything? And you're in this crowd, and you don't say anything. Well, you saw what happened. You knew, you knew who was at fault. And yet you conceal the truth. You don't say what it is that you need to say. Well, you didn't say anything, but you're still covering up for somebody for some reason. You're in falsehood, even though you've not told a lie. You hadn't spoke up. That happens all the time. It's actually possible to be stuck in falsehood while speaking the truth to somebody. You can actually do this. Uh, the late, great Ray Young had a, had a favorite joke. It went like this. He said there was this mailman who was making his way through the local neighborhood, his normal route. He came across this man sitting on the front porch, and on his front porch was this huge dog. The mailman went through the gate, approached this man, and, uh, and asked him, does your dog bite? And the man says, no. So the mailman reaches out his hand, starts to pet the dog, and the dog latches onto the mailman's hand, ferociously drawing blood. The mailman wrenches himself free, runs for his life, jumps over the front fence, and calls back to the man sitting on the porch, Hey, I thought you said your dog didn't bite. And the man said, I did. My dog does not bite. But that's not my dog. Now, he spoke the truth, but it was still misleading. You, you can technically do the right things while still being false with people. You can be stuck in falsehood by lying to yourself. And you don't even know that you're lying to yourself. 
You can't speak the truth unless you put off falsehood. And we're going to get more into this next week, but let me just give you a, a, a teaser here. Sometimes people think that they're telling the truth, but they're telling it from their perspective, and their perspective is all wrong because there's something false going on inside of them. They're looking at life through the wrong lens. It's broken. It's cloudy. And so they think they're reporting the truth, but they're not saying the truth at all. They're completely wrong. You have to put off falsehood before speaking the truth. Well, how do we do this? How do you put off falsehood? Why is that all so important? And then when we speak the truth, how do we speak the truth and do it appropriately? Those are great questions. And we're going to get to that next week. Uh, But in the time that remains, I just want to talk about living in the truth in terms of why. Why is this so important? And the why is important because what we're talking about here is being peculiar in a good way. That is to say, We want to be Christian truth-tellers in a way that's unique. And most everybody agrees that telling the truth is good. It doesn't matter if you're a Muslim or Jehovah's Witness or Buddhist or Hindu or Rosicrucian or Confucianist, Taoist, Humanist, whatever. Everybody says telling the truth is a good thing. Most people promote truth-telling. So why is Christian truth-telling any different? Well, the why and the how. And you're going to see this, hopefully, at least beginning a little bit. Actually, telling the truth as a Christian is different, and it largely gets down to the why. Because if you don't know your why, it is going to impact your how. Um, I, uh, I, I tried to boil this illustration down, but I, I really couldn't do it. I came across something from uh, Michael Jr. He's a Christian humorist, and he talks about the power of knowing your why. And I thought the best way to just illustrate this was just to show you this little clip from a message from Michael Jr. It's about three minutes long, so just to pay attention and think about the importance of your why. We're in Winston-Salem. So break time, this is how it works. I travel the country, I do stand-up comedy, probably an hour, hour and a half at an event. And in the middle of my show, I'll just sit down and start talking to the audience. And funny just happens. Or I'll meet somebody who's really interesting. So I met this one guy, and he said that he teaches music at a school. I was like, all right, you teach music, you know, um, can't you sing? And then uh, I'm just going to show you the clip. Check it. So you're a musical director. Yes, sir. All right, so um, let me get a couple couple bars of, like, uh, Amazing Grace. Can you do the first part of that? Go ahead. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Wow. That brought could sing. You know what I'm saying? All right, all right. Uh, now, once you give me the version, is if uh, your uncle just got out of jail, you got shot in the back when you was a kid. I'm just saying, let me see the hood version real quick. If you know which version I'm talking about, just see if that exists. Let me see what you got. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved.
So here's the thing. The first time I asked him to sing, he knew what he was doing. The second time I asked him to sing, he knew why he was doing it. When you know your why, your what has more impact because you're walking in or towards your purpose. A great illustration. And I tried to do that myself, but I could never hit the notes. Um, your why does make all the difference. Uh, so why is it that we tell the truth? Why is it that we live in truth? Well, you'll have to notice that the Apostle Paul never says, and Jesus never says, nobody really just says, hey, you need to not lie because lying is bad. It is bad, but that's not the why. Uh, it's not like, hey, you need to tell the truth because if you tell a lie, people are going to catch you. And that's true, generally. Um, but that's not the why given in Scripture, but it's it's true, I mean, I heard about a lady coming home from work. She stopped at the butcher to get a chicken for dinner. So she asked the butcher for a chicken, and he reaches into the bottom of the barrel and gets out the one remaining chicken from behind the counter, throws it up on the scale, and tells her what the weight is. She says, I need more chicken than that. So he takes the chicken, throws it back in the barrel, and pretends to reach around in there for another chicken. Pulls out the chicken, throws it back on the scale, same chicken, and he tells the woman, this chicken weighs one pound more than the last. The woman ponders the situation and she says, okay, I'll take both of them. Um, honesty is the best policy. Well, you know, you, you'll get caught eventually, sometimes at least. But that's not the why in Scripture. And the why isn't, well, gentlemen and gentle ladies tell the truth or we just need to be, you know. No. We could probably come up with a top ten list of reasons that would help compel us toward truth-telling. But what I'm concerned about is not your why or my why or whatever whys we can come up with. We, we really want to listen to God's primary why. Because my goal and your goal is to sing the song of my life and your life. To sing the song in a way that brings maximum pleasure to God's heart. Not just to do it or to do it okay. But to sing it with all of the passion and with all of the tone and with all of the gusto that is appropriate for a peculiar priest of God. So God gives us a why. Now check this out. Let's think about this. Chapter 4 verse 25 once again. Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Here's the why. For we are all members of one body. The reason that you and I live in truthfulness is because of who we are. We are members of one body. And what that means is you are in a living, vital, connected life with Christ. You are really, truly connected to Jesus Christ, and you're really, truly connected to other people who are really, truly connected to the head who is Jesus Christ. You go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, Colossians chapter 1, earlier in Ephesians, Ephesians 3, 6, Ephesians 5, 3, talks about the body of Christ. And in the body of Christ, Christ is the head, and everyone else who belongs to Christ are members of one and the same body. And so here's the reason that we tell the truth. We, we live in truth because we are all members of one body. That's the why. Now, let's just think about this for a second. First of all, you're connected to Jesus Christ in a living, vital sense. What does that mean? 
Well, Jesus Christ is God with us. Jesus Christ is God. In God, there is no falsehood whatsoever. Jesus Christ isn't just the head that's filled with knowledge. He's the head that's filled with truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Now, when you see that you are actually vitally, significantly connected to Jesus Christ, who is truth, well, that sort of changes the motivational factor, doesn't it, with regards to the way in which you live a life filled with truth. You want to have nothing to do with anything that is false because that's not in keeping with the head to whom you're connected. Beyond that, not just being motivated to live in truth and abide in truth and promote truth because of the head, think about the other people of whom you're a part. You're one with them. We are one with the other members of the body. And so when that's the case, and you know that to be the case, you recognize that being false with other people is somewhat akin to being false with yourself. You're not helping yourself by lying to somebody else. You're hurting yourself because in the body of Christ, they're you. You're connected. It's like this. Suppose we're all different members of one of the same body, and and let's just suppose that I'm a foot and you're a hand. Okay? I want to be the hand. Hands are just better than feet, and my feet are not really good at all. But I'll be the foot, you be the hand. Suppose you as the hand say, I want to go over here to the fridge and grab some milk. And as the foot, we're just not communicating. Well, the hand can't do what the hand wants to do because the foot and the hand aren't talking. Or the foot has an itch. It says to the hand, I need some help. And the hand is not paying attention to the foot. So I've cut myself off from the hand. The hand's cut itself off from the foot. And who has benefited? Nobody. When you don't see yourselves as one and essentially fundamentally connected with one another through the headship of Jesus Christ, nobody wins. It's almost like knowing you're part of the same body and then choosing to have some sort of neuromuscular disease like muscular dystrophy or myasthenia gravis where the voluntary muscles aren't really connecting with the central nervous system. And so what's going on in this hand over here and this foot over here, they're not really on the same page. And the reality is when the hands aren't on the same page with each other and the feet aren't on the same page with each other and the muscles aren't communicating appropriately with the brain and vice versa, you know, you're on the verge of death because that also applies to involuntary muscles. Who wants to live intentionally with muscular dystrophy or myasthenia gravis? That just that doesn't make any sense. And so Paul's saying, you, you really need to be passionate about living in the truth and abiding in the truth and putting off falsehood and speaking the truth to one another because we're all one in the body. That's the big why. To not act as if you're one is just, that's unthinkable. And when you start thinking along those lines, you should start to be able to see, oh, Christian truth-telling is radically different. And here's what I mean by radically different. It is in terms of the why. I ought to be able to speak. I want to penetrate your life with truth, and you want to penetrate my life with truth. Because this is deeply, this is deeply, deeply personal. And when we talk about penetrating one another's lives with truth, we're not just talking in terms of, I want to correct you, and you're going to correct me, and that. No. We're talking about honesty. We're talking about helpful integrity. We're talking about like operating as really brothers and sisters in the same family. This is why Romans chapter 12 verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Why? Because we're all one. 
When somebody else has a victory, you have a victory too. Why? Because you're one. When somebody suffers, you suffer. Why? Because you're one. We relate to one another on the basis then not merely of truth, but truth spoken in love, truth in grace. That's why I actually, ideally, I should be able to tell you things and you should be able to tell me things and we should be able to encourage one another and we should be able to confess our sins one to another because we relate to one another, not on the basis of law, but on the basis of grace. And when you relate to other people on the basis of grace, there's openness, there's honesty, there's camaraderie, there's family, there's one body. Now, is that what people kind of want to be a part of? You know, we, we talk a lot in this society about collaboration and we talk about partnerships and we talk about community and we talk about, you know, being on the same team. And what Paul's talking about here transcends all of that. We're talking about not just being on the same page with one another, not just being on the same team. We're talking about we're actually one body. Do you think people want to be a part of a family that speaks the truth to one another in love as if benefiting oneself? Do you think people want to be a part of a community of believers that they can be honest and open and transparent without the threat of rejection? Where people could actually be moving forward in truth without having to sacrifice community, but actually enhancing community as people are moving forward in truth. In most contexts, you tell people the truth and you get rejection. This is the community where you tell people the truth and you know you're loved. And the sense of oneness goes up because the reality is if you're a Christian, you are one with the brothers and sisters that are seated around you. That's why we abide in truth. Because we're all members of one body. So we want to nail it, right? We want to nail this. So how do you put off falsehood? How do we speak the truth to our neighbors? Well, I'm glad you asked. Come back next week. <laughs> Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the love and the grace you bestowed on us. And uh, Lord, you are so good. And uh, you're... Your way is so unique, and it's true that, you know, to, to be transformed, not just into this kind of person that's being talked about, but to be transformed into this kind of community that is being promoted, the kind of community that you actually created by your broken body and shed blood, the new life you've given us, a life you've given us after the likeness of God because of your righteousness and your holiness. Lord, we, we recognize this whole thing is a grace gift. We are privileged to be called unto this life and empowered unto this life. But it's not just about us and the privilege of being your people. It's about upholding your honor and the honor of the family of which you're a part. And we just pray, Lord, that as the days go on and we understand more about the specifics of the life you've called us to that is peculiar in a good way, in a compelling way, in an attractive way, that we'll just totally buy in. And that we would become the kind of people as a family of priests revealing you where truly you would be revealed as together we act as family. Under the headship of Christ, knowing that we are members of one another and that that's never going to change. Lord, help us to be the kind of people you'd have us to be. Not just individually, but corporately. That your name would be honored. That your renown would fill the earth.
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.